This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you live on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike filling in for Dave. It is Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, John Lepke discusses the ongoing issues of disability perception and portrayal. And new uh, community reporter Peter Parsons recaps a couple of major goalball tournaments that have taken place this winter, including the Montreal Open. Before we get into that, we Ross. Thank you, Alex. We'll begin in British Columbia, where a man's been charged in a series of arsons in the southern interior community of Mission. The first in a series of six fires started in July 2021, and the most recent happened on January 6th of this year. One fire in August 2021 grew to nearly a hectare and prompted an evacuation of nearby homes while BC wildfire helicopters were called in to help extinguish it. BC Prosecution Service says a man has been charged with six counts of arson and is to appear next month in Abbotsford Provincial Court. To the prairies, all of Manitoba, including the city of Winnipeg, has been placed under an extreme cold warning with wind chill values down to minus 50 in some areas. Environment Canada says a bitterly cold Arctic air mass has settled over the region. It says the deep freeze is expected to last into the weekend. Environment Canada is then forecasting a warming trend to more seasonal temperatures by Sunday. The president of the Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities to the, is calling out on the province to pay more attention to the health care needs of smaller communities. Ray Orb says the shortage of physicians and nurses continues to be a problem. He says there's also poor communication between the Saskatchewan Health Authority and people who live in rural areas. Orb says if the problems in rural Saskatchewan are fixed, it would take pressure off health care facilities in urban centres. To Ontario, that province planning to expand surgeries and procedures to private clinics, pardon me, but it doesn't yet know who will inspect them. The government has tabled, pardon me, this uh, computer is acting up on me and that script has disappeared. There we go. Let's get back to that Ontario story where the province is planning to expand surgeries and procedures at private clinics, but it doesn't yet know who will inspect them. The government tabling legislation to expand the role of community clinics, including adding hip and knee surgeries. The bill will enable the province to designate expert organizations to inspect the clinics, but Health Minister Sylvia Jones says the province hasn't yet decided who those organizations will be. NDP leader Merritt Stiles says that shows a lack of transparency and accountability. Premier Doug Ford dodging questions about his refusal to testify at the inquiry over the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act during last year's convoy protests. Inquiry Commissioner Justice Paul Rouleau concluded that Ontario was reluctant to become, quote, 
fully engaged, end quote, with the city of Ottawa and the federal government. Rillo said the province abandoned the people of Ottawa by not helping sooner. Ford did not answer a question yesterday in the legislature on the findings of the uh, report, but government House leader Paul Calandra cited the work of the OPP and said the province will work better uh, and work on better communication between police forces. And to the Atlantic region, Quebec Premier François Legault is heading to Newfoundland and Labrador Thursday and Friday to participate in the renegotiation of the Churchill Falls hydroelectricity deal. Legault made the announcement of the trip yesterday to St. John's during question period at the Quebec City Legislature. The 1969 agreement with Newfoundland and Labrador allows Hydro-Quebec to purchase the majority of the electricity generated at the station in central Labrador and therefore reap most of the profits. As of 2019, the deal yielded close to $28 billion in profits to Quebec, compared to just $2 billion for Newfoundland and Labrador. And finally, the mayor of Bonavista, Newfoundland, says there's finally good news for the health care situation in his town. John Norman said in a Facebook post that Bonavista's emergency room should be open for the most of March. And April is looking good, too. He said the provincial health officials have agreed to hire two more family doctors and two more nurse practitioners for his community. The hospital in Bonavista has been plagued by closures because of staff shortages. And Norman has said the situation was forcing people to move away. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Back in with you in a few minutes to get an update on the weather. But first, it's time for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. So, Brock, before we get into our other two topics, we wanted to talk quickly about a milestone that uh, one of the most uh, famous and well-known players in the NHL reached last night. Yes, it, this is a pretty big milestone. Connor McDavid reached 800 points for his career. That is approximately 100 points per year if you divide... Uh, it by his time in the league uh he is on fire 800 points is something that um is something to behold and of course with about 20 ish 30 games left for most teams this will be surpassed so it will be over 100 points per year by the time the season is over but as of right now it's it's approximately 100 points per year during his career which is pretty outstanding to be honest yeah, it, it's quite remarkable just thinking how consistent he's been at, at, at such a high level for the, the first uh, start of his career to, to now. It, it's truly remarkable. Hopefully, you know, it, it continues to build and maintain and then come playoff time when it really matters, they can, they can cash in and they can uh, really get a good push and some support from the rest of his team. But Sticking with hockey, you came across this other story that you wanted to talk about. Yes. So do you remember the uh, Tim Peel situation from a few seasons ago where he got fired uh, from the league? Do you remember that situation from yes. a few years? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of controversy about him because he was a referee who basically was caught on a mic, uh, maybe uh, suggesting that he... Didn't quite see a penalty, but he still felt the need to call a penalty on the team. Yes, I uh, yeah, he said uh, there it wasn't much, but he wanted to uh, get an expletive 
call out there on this given team? Well, Mr. Peel is still in the news. He was recently uh, in a at a minor league game. There was kind of no um, understanding of why he was at this minor league game, but he was caught harassing a minor league official who was 17 years old, citing, do you know who I am? Um, to me, this is really unfortunate that uh, he, he did this. I, I think that, you know, given his situation and what he's gone through, you know, from a couple of years ago, he should know better that it's a 17-year-old for one. Uh, secondly, you should never be citing do you know who I am uh, to a 17-year-old. I just think this is a poor choice on uh, Mr. Peel's behalf to do this, and it's it's wrong. It's, yeah. And, and it's, so I, I, I did a bit of uh, looking into this uh, uh, this story, uh, Brock, and so I, I, I found out that basically the game he was at, what happened was the, uh, the teen refs basically ejected the two coaches for his son's team and so he was clearly upset and so he went on a a bit of a a tirade and then people started recording it with this with their phones and i i guess it was over like 15 minutes worth of recording so you know that's it's longer because it takes time to pull out the phone as soon as someone starts yelling and shouting but yeah you're 100 percent right you know this this guy was a professional ref he knows the abuse that refs take on any given time and these are still teenagers i it's like Give him a break. I, I don't think this guy should be anywhere near a hockey rink going forward uh, anytime soon. He shouldn't be allowed to even watch the games, let alone uh, participate or be a ref or, or in, involved in any way, shape, or form. I, Alex, I can understand, you know, as a parent, you know, sometimes you get a little bit, you know, passionate over your team and all, all that's fine. But I do think there's a line at which you need to understand and you need to sort of realize you know, where you're crossing the line and where you're going too far. And with a 17-year-old referee, this is a bit too far, especially given his history as a referee and what he got caught for in the NHL. I just think he, of all people, should be stepping back, realizing, hey, man, I, I got in trouble for doing something I, I shouldn't have done, so who be it to me to, to do this against a 17-year-old uh, referee? There's no place in it to begin with, but there's definitely no place given his history, as I mentioned. Yeah, you always kind of wish that there would be some sort of understanding or recognition of, oh, I've I made mistakes in the past. I've learned from them. I, I'm going to rehabilitate myself and be better for it. Uh, these actions kind of show, no, nope, that that hasn't happened. That hasn't taken place. But uh, yeah. you know what? I'm I'm ready to move on from from him. Don't need to listen or hear anymore. Let's move on to something a bit happier, a bit lighter, Brock. You want to talk about broadcasters. Yes. So I'm curious, do you uh, put much thought into particular broadcasters that you listen to or forums that you listen to? And does it matter on which sport you pick any given forum to listen to, if you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it becomes much more apparent. Like when I used to watch hockey as much as I could when I was you know late teens early early 20s and it was and it was also I remember that time where it went from uh the the broadcast rights went from TSN to, to Rogers and you know there was this whole changeover I I found I I gravitated to a couple different hockey broadcasters and I would be like oh I 
if someone if this person or that person is broadcasting a game i really don't want to listen to it i'm going to kind of turn it off or i'll put it on mute or or something um nowadays I, i've kind of tuned out a bit of the the hockey side of things but when it comes to football uh because i i still try to watch as much football as i can and it's much more distinctive because not only do you have two stations covering it you have about four different channels now that are covering and mm. each broadcast team is very different there's different quality different levels of competency i would say you you get the old veterans you get the younger guys or newer uh, fresh-faced guys for me like there are certain games especially when it comes to um i i think it's cbs it's a, the tony romo uh a team i yep. just have never been a fan I, I thought he was very smart in, in his calls. He could read the plays very well, but I, I just didn't buy him as a broadcaster, whereas, like, you, you look at Fox or you look at ESPN, where you get a combination of an old team like Joe Buck and Troy Aikman or, you know, Greg Olson is a new face who just started, I think, this year broadcasting, and he's been phenomenal. And I, I'm a huge fan of his, but, you know, I, I never quite thought about it before, Brock, but it's like, yeah, the more you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, you, you do pick favorites. You have ones where you're like, yeah, oh, so-and-so is calling it. Mm, maybe I'll pass. Or maybe I'll, I'll just kind of put the volume on low. Yeah. And I do have that uh, one that when they do a particular game, as soon as I know that uh, this particular broadcaster is uh, broadcasting, down goes the volume. Because <laughs> it's not so much about their ability to broadcast it's the shenanigans that go on between that it's like it's too much anyway there is a reason i'm asking all of this of you and that is because we are now learning that sportsnet uh who is the carrier for the toronto blue jays is removing their on location broadcasts for the road games so what that's going to mean is that during home games they will be in in the stadium as they always have on road games, they will be in a studio in Toronto doing the broadcast. Former broadcaster of the Toronto Blue Jays, Jerry Howard, says that he's very disappointed in the organization's decision uh, to do this. And I was thinking about this, Alex, and I'm curious of your thoughts. Do you think by doing games remotely, do you think that that lessens the um, ability for them to broadcast effectively and what i'm saying is uh, for me i believe that no matter how many camera angles you give you're not getting the feel of the ballpark you're not getting the energy from the crowd that might help you and that's can be tough i believe yeah absolutely i i think there is certainly something to be said for being on location and especially when something unexpected happens or if there is some sort of uh you know like weird thing like a blackout or or anything like that where there's some technical issue i mean if you're remote like the feed may just drop for you or it may cut out but if you're there you can actually describe it it's like oh this is what's happening instead of oh we have a black screen we don't know what's gone on so i i think yeah. from a very practical standpoint there's that but there's also something to feeling the roar of the crowd the emotion of the game like being in a stadium opposed to hearing it over, you know, a feed or, or on TV or something is very different. You go, don't get the scope, the energy, the tenacity, the, the consistency of what that fan experience is like in, in those atmospheres. So definitely there's something lost to it. 
And even like I'll even use my own example. You know, when we record the neutral zone for the YouTube uh, platform, I still have our technical producers put the music in the background because it gives you that feel. It gives you it's very hard to do cold, you know, cold openings without music because it kind of gets you in the, you know, the. The, the mood, the mode of doing what you're doing. And so for me, I understood why Sportsnet did this, of course, during the pandemic when there was a whole bunch of travel restrictions and Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez had to do it from the Tim and Sid studios at the time. I totally get that. Now, I just think they're doing a disservice to the radio audience who needs arguably more detail than the television audience because when you're listening, you're not seeing what's going on around you. So you need more detail. So for them, I believe it's more important for them uh, to be in the stadium than even the TV broadcasters because the TV, we can visually see it. But with the radio, you're relying totally on, you know, listening versus seeing. So... It, well, especially, too, when it comes to baseball, I, I don't think any other sport is as synonymous with radio broadcast as baseball is. So I, I think uh, there's 100% there's, it's something about that authentic, authenticity, that, that the like, soundscaping, the, the painting of the imagery, and, and being able to look off the screen and see what players are doing in the dugouts and things like that, because you're not going to always get that on the different camera angles. So... I agree, Brock. It, it's going to be a change, but you know, ultimately, it's going to stop anyone from watching. I don't think so. I think it's just the experience will be a bit dropped. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Dan Schulman said it as much to the point when they were doing uh, remote broadcasting. There were situations where they could not see uh, certain parts because the feed dropped out. And so, like as you pointed out earlier, when the feed drops out, you're pretty much euchred in the sense of you can't broadcast because you physically can't see it. Whereas if something drops off and you're on location, you can sort of make the most of it based on what you see, even though they're further up in the in the stadium and still rely on screens, but you can still use your eyes and ears when you can't necessarily do that if the feed's dropped out. I do think uh, Sportsnet's made a, a bit of a, a poor decision. I, I agree with Jerry Howarth. I think that this is a poor decision, but in, in essence, the radio broadcast will roll on and People will just do the best they can do with uh, what they have. Absolutely. Brock, we got to get out of here. But thank you so much for bringing these topics forward. And tomorrow, I can't wait to dive into a bit of Raptors talk with you. Yes, it'll be fun. All righty. That's Brock Richardson, who is the co-host of the Neutral Zone on AMI.ca. And so we head from the sport desk over to the weather desk with Mike Ross, who has the regional weather update. Thanks very much, Alex. It is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, and we begin in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. A mix of sun and cloud today, a high of minus 3, and a wind chill this afternoon of minus 8. Charlottetown PEI will be mainly sunny with a high of 0 and a wind chill of minus 17. To New Brunswick, St. John has a mix of sun and cloud today, the high plus 3, the wind chill minus 18. To Quebec City, where it will be mainly cloudy with a high of minus 7 and a wind chill near minus 17. Toronto will get some snow heavy at times beginning this afternoon with a high of minus 1 and a wind chill near minus 10. Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario has a mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 6, the wind chill dropping to minus 10 this afternoon. 
in Brandon, Manitoba. We begin our March of Frostbite. Yes, increasing cloudiness, a high of minus 22, and the wind chill this afternoon, minus 30. In Regina, sunny with a high of minus 25, the wind chill minus 33 this afternoon. To Lethbridge, Alberta, periods of light snow, a high of minus 20, and a wind chill of minus 33. And in Red Deer, Alberta, mainly cloudy with the temperature steady near minus 25, the wind chill steady near minus 36. And all of those prairie destinations come with a wind chill and a frostbite advisory. Whitehorse, Yukon, it has clearing skies, a high of minus 14. And the high uh, there, or the wind chill rather, minus 25 this morning, minus 17 this afternoon. Kelowna, BC will have periods of light snow with a high of minus 3. The wind chill will be minus 13. And finally, in Vancouver, British Columbia, it'll be cloudy today with the temperature steady near zero. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, we'll check in later with you in the show. But coming up next, John Lepke discusses the ongoing issues of disability perception and portrayal. So watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe filling in for Dave. Perception and portrayal are a tricky thing. Everyone wants to be seen in a positive light, but sometimes it can create an artificial image of what people are actually like. It can be especially true when highlighting a marginalized group like people with a disability. This was something that columnist John Lepke tackled in a recent story he did on CBC. He joins us now to discuss this issue more. Good morning, John. Good morning. So can you, what inspired you to choose this topic and why did you feel it was important to discuss this now? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've always been curious whether it was uh, in my time as an athlete, obviously work as a journalist, but, but also some of the academic work that I've done about how we look at disabled people and, and the fact that we tend to get split into two groups, right? The um, the idealistic overcome their disability, they're just like us sort of narrative, and then the sad disabled person in the corner. Um, and, and what I really wanted to do at a time where, you know, we're in the midst of an ongoing COVID pandemic, um, long COVID has meant that a lot of disabled folks are coming into the community and understanding themselves as disabled. Um, thought now was the time to really dig into the dangers of creating just such a split screen, for lack of a better term, when it comes to how disabled people are viewed. You mentioned in the piece that you want disabled people to, allow, uh, to be allowed to be boring. So can you tell me a little bit more about that and what you meant by that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of, especially on social media, right? Images of, uh, there's always that image of uh, uh, a child amputee with two running legs with a little thing that says your excuse is invalid. You know, in some ways I'd love to see that just being like, oh, there's a 
you know, there's a disabled athlete running in our in our track event this year, rather than you know a, a giant piece in in the media or you know being the inspirational story um, on the nightly news to remind us all why why it's worth uh, living in a way. I mean, my first media appearance was as, as a child was one of those. Um, uh, I was the cuddly story uh, in British media, um, but I think we can we can get beyond that especially when it comes to when it comes to adults yeah now you also talked about there's an idea that you know disabled people are either being heroes or zeros and that can prevent harm from being addressed in uh the community so why do you say that why do you say that you can't really address harm if they're either being a hero or a zero yeah. Well, I think when we have this idealistic notion of what a disabled person looks like or, or acts like, um, especially when it is that inspiration porn angle, when a disabled person behaves badly, for lack of a better term, um, that that really shields them from public critique. And I think that does a disservice to the disability community. Um, we don't really have the data on uh, abuse within disability community. There's StatsCan data that, that proves out that disabled people, especially disabled women, are disproportionate, uh, sorry, disabled women and non-binary folks are uh, disproportionately affected um, by uh, I think the data is specifically on disabled men, but women, but I think it's fair that we can extend that out to non-binary folks as well, um, uh, are disproportionately affected by by harm uh, and and are disproportionately, you know, not given uh, the the pathways to uh, to support. Um, and I think we'd be fairly ignorant if we didn't believe that some of that harm comes from disabled people ourselves, whether that's through um, violence, which that StatsCan report was looking at, or whether that is the sort of lateral um, ableism that we can see in, in community. So how should we balance the way we tell stories and, and cover the disability community in media? Yeah, so I, I think part of the issue um, is that newsrooms aren't necessarily educated on disability issues and i think part of the issue is that disabled journalists by and large aren't uh, aren't able to be out in particularly mainstream newsrooms i'm insulated from that as a freelancer i would say um uh but i think coverage is it's it needs to be able to work with a, a disabled person to actually hear how people want to be referred to you know if i read one more lead to a story that starts i'm going to use myself for an example but you know sub in somebody else's name if you want to you know uh J J john lepke is a wheelchair bound disabled journalist and that's the lead like where are we when we are talking about the story? What is important about the story? I doubt the fact that I use a wheelchair is the important part to the story. Um, and I think the second part is seeing disabled stories or disability stories within um, a, a wider range of topics. Uh, you know, when I'm doing some of these newsroom trainings or having these newsroom discussions, I, I say, you know, give me a topic. I'm kind of daring them to prove me wrong, but, you know, give me a topic and and uh, I'll find you a disability angle. Yeah, well, and 
especially too, because you you had mentioned also, you know, your experience as as an athlete. I know specifically, like sport has always been uh, an, a field where the coverage is typically over the top. It's overly flowery. It's it's overly amped up and just larger than life. And how how the the reporters and how the stories are are discussing and describing the achievements of athletes. So when it comes to the parasport level, they're combining disability, the perception of disability, and then sport on top of that. So as a athlete, how do you want sports and parasports specifically, or how did you want your uh, your achievements in sport covered? Yeah, I think it would be revisionist history if I sort of applied my current politics or my current thoughts to that, because, um, you know, I put the retired and retired athlete, you know, it's the week of Canada Games and, and the last time I competed for anything particularly important was, uh, was about six years ago. Um, that said, I think at the time you're happy to have a camera put in your face, you're happy to talk about, uh, about parasport. You're happy to, uh, as we watch the uh, Canadian wheelchair rugby team practice there, you know, I I'm sure those folks, many of whom I know, are, are happy to promote their sport. Um, I think it's a difference between what you're able to say publicly and what you say behind closed doors. I think publicly you, you sort of have to play the party line um, of, yeah, any coverage is good coverage. Um, and, and I think that 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 can that can cause issues i i think the power of you know, you had uh uh sports journalist apologies for for forgetting uh his name but on before me i i think that there is definitely there need the best part about sports coverage is when it's human interest and fortunately when we talk about human interest and disability people automatically jump to ah what's their diagnosis and uh, you know i'll use myself personally my cerebral palsy might be the most boring thing about me. Um, and so how can we go beyond that? And and the second thing is sports, um, it's a bit like a parachute journalism problem in that the coverage doesn't matter if you're talking about like a, a smaller national competition where there is, say, a, a webcast or an international thing like the Paralympics. The, the coverage tends to not to not strike a good balance between knowing about the sport and going to insider baseball. I mean, there have been many cases of you're listening to a broadcast and it might as well you boil down to and so and so with this diagnosis passes to so and so with this diagnosis. And so there are there are more interesting things to talk about. And, and I think it takes a committed journalist uh, and a committed media ecosystem to actually see, I don't want to say beyond the disability, because obviously we want that to be part of the story as athletes. It's it's how we got there. Um, but how do we broaden out? I mean, uh, uh, for example, um, Devin Haru with CBC writing about uh, the, the wage discrepancies, for lack of a better term, between when it comes to medal wins between para-athletes and, and um enable bodied athletes is an example of coverage that that goes beyond that simple uh, uh, divide. Yeah, absolutely. The the difference between a Paralympic medal and an Olympic medal in Canada was was uh, truly some some strong, important uh, coverage within the involving the the parasport community. I, I think also, too, there is a challenge because, as you mentioned, it's like the parachute journalism people, reporters who are just coming in to cover this specific story. They, they don't have that that connection, that relatability within the community. 
the understanding mm -hmm. that, especially when it comes to parasport, you know, oftentimes the classifications are based on disability or, or based on how uh, the, the function of an athlete's limbs or ability in certain fields is how they classified. So it, it can give a, um, a I guess, a, a bit more runway for certain reporters to, to lean into that. But I, I think you, you kind of touched on this, it's authentic, authenticity and, and language can play really big roles in, in these types of conversations in highlighting and covering people in, with disabilities. Can you kind of expand on those, how important those two things are? Yeah, for sure. And and just to add to a point, I think also there's a lack of, even within disabled journalists, I think there is a lack of knowledge about parasport. And I think even disabled journalists need to acknowledge um, that there are some stories that perhaps they don't have the background knowledge just yet to report on. Um, as for uh, what role language plays, I think... Well, for one, maybe this is a, uh, a, a contentious statement that I'm about to make, but I think a lot of the public, some of the public relations work uh, around parasport is really good and disability informed, and, and some of it I, I feel is not. I, I mean, I, I think the best guidance that we can look to is actually from the uh, National Center for Disability Journalism at Arizona State, uh, those guidelines, which I happen to write about. Um, uh, at one point, uh, point to, you know, ask people about what they want to, be, how they want to be referred to when it comes to disability. Um, I find, for example, that while activist communities will tend to be identity first, parasport communities are quite often person first um, because that's what they've been brought up to understand within the parasport paradigm. Um, and so really, I mean, my my preference is to ask about the, uh, you know, about what you're there to ask about the sport um, and then ask about the intersections with disability. Um, I think people are, you know, one of my favorite interview questions is, you know, what do you like to nerd out about? And quite often you're nerding out about sport in these interviews. I think that's why sports journalists get into it. Um, I think when we get too panicked, when we go above and beyond asking people, you know, how would you like person first or identity first language? Um, I, you know, I feel your diagnosis is relevant within this context. Do, do, you, do you feel the same way? Like asking these questions and being vulnerable, a word that I think journalists tend to hate, um, uh, is is the way forward in my view. Yeah, though that's some great advice, John. Now. In terms of uh, this story, what what has been some of the feedback that you've gotten from the community? Yeah, absolutely. I think the feedback that I've got from the community has been has been wi widely positive. In that, I think people like the uh, perhaps the bluntness of of the approach. Uh, not to give myself uh, too many compliments, and um, you know, kudos to CBC because there's the video and there's the written, there's captions. I, I think the reason that the series succeed and and the reason to give my collaborators their flowers, Natasha Lipney uh, being one of those people, a producer at CBC, and a, a whole team that you can see credited in the piece. Um, the value is that it's able to to speak across. I guess you could say learning styles. It it 
it's something that that people can come back to and and people have mentioned to me that they've come back to it and they're thankful for being able to to look at the nooks and crannies of this divide because it's very easy to say you know i hate being seen as a super crip or i hate being seen as a tragic disabled person but being able to put that into applicable uh scenarios and being able to see it in your own um surroundings is what i hope to do with the series john thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i really appreciate it thanks so much for having me that is john lepke is who is a columnist and joined us from saskatoon coming up after the break peter parsons recaps a couple of major goalball tournaments that have taken place this winter including the montreal open you're watching now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike. So this show has seen a lot of new faces over the course of the winter season. Lucky for you, there's one more you get to get used to. A new columnist I am happy to introduce is Peter Parsons. Peter is a goalball enthusiast and orientation and mobility specialist at the Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority. He joins the show now from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Good, very good. Thanks. Nice to be with you here, Alex. Yes, nice to have you on. So, Peter, as an orientation and mobility specialist, like, what does that role entail? So I teach students how to travel safely and efficiently throughout various environments. It could be anything from their, their school to out crossing at busy um, advanced intersections to taking public transit and being able to... to travel efficiently on public transit. Now, there are so many technological innovations that you are working to help make people navigate independently. What do you make of all these new and innovative tech? Oh, it's been it's been great for the, the blind and partially sighted community. Um, there's specific apps uh, that are made specifically for blind and low vision people to help with navigation, uh, GPS type of apps. But there's also mainstream apps like Google Maps, for example, that people can use with the built-in accessibility features on their smartphone, such as VoiceOver or Zoom. And to be able to use these apps to plan routes and to use them in real time. Uh, that being said, it's it's really important that a person has good uh, cane skills or basic orientation and mobility skills, those traditional skills that um, will always be important because the apps, the technology can get you, say, within the vicinity of the business you're going to, for example. Um, but then, you know, you still need to be able to get to that door. Maybe you need, you know, those cane skills become important or skills like being able to ask for directions or assistance if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the white cane, it, it, it's hard to 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 compete with with something so simple but elegant and effective now outside of the orientation and mobility side of things you you had a great passion for goalball when did you get involved with the sport and at what capacity do you compete so i first got involved with goalball back in 2004 when i lived with in winnipeg um that's where i had my first job with the cnib back in the day as an orientation mobility specialist and so i played in uh 
Winnipeg for the Manitoba team for a year before moving to Halifax. Actually, I went to my, with Manitoba, went to my first nationals in 2005 in Halifax. And uh, I was, you know, I came from a background of playing uh, fully sighted sports as a kid, even though I had a visual impairment since I was 12 years old. Um, but when I got to those nationals and saw the level of athlete that was there and how competitive the sport was and, you know, getting to play against some uh, Paralympians on their provincial teams. Um, that's when I knew that, uh, you know, I was hooked after my first tournament. I knew I wanted to make the national team. And so now I'm on the Nova Scotia men's team. And I, um, so we compete nationally uh, on the Nova Scotia men's team. I'm also on the, the men's national team uh, for, for goalball. Now, as, as part of the uh, pandemic, unfortunately, Parasport took a massive hit. There was a lot of those, all the sports paused for a long time, but it seems now they're kind of starting to get back up and running. So what does it mean to have those competitions and, and tournaments uh, coming back and, and being able to compete again? It's it's so important for, uh, for I, I think, especially of the kids that I coach with goalball as well. And um, just in terms of their, you know, their physical health as well as the mental health, you know, when we go away to these goalball tournaments, we get to that tournament hotel and meet up with our friends from across the country and uh, meet new friends and just the social aspect and then getting to con compete, you know, because we, we put a lot into our training back home, whether it's uh, on the goalball court or in the in the weight room, on the treadmill, that sort of thing. And to have that extra motivation with a, a tournament coming up, um, it's it's huge. And it, it's so important, like any, like we all know the benefits of team sport. And so for a lot of, uh, a lot of these kids who maybe in some cases weren't able to participate fully in, in team sports because of uh, vision loss, uh, to be able to have a sport like goalball, to be able to fully participate and have the potential to make it right to the Paralympics. And so um, being back in full tournament swing is uh yeah it's 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 huge um and i see uh you know the the kids i coach like i said they just they just uh love it and, and so do i actually I'm, I'm older but i still you know have that feeling when i'm in the airport going to that that tournament hotel into the gym to compete so yeah it's great speaking of tournament uh you recently went to the montreal open how did that tournament go it went really well. It's they do such a great job in Montreal of organizing the tournament. It's an annual tournament, the last weekend in in January, and this was the first one um, since the pandemic. So we had two years off of this tournament. So it was great to be back there, and um, it went really well. We had eight men's teams, and um, unfortunately only two women's teams, which uh, which was low. So um, a low number. And the men's side. Um, we, uh, our Nova Scotia men, we made it right to the final. Um, we were the top Canadian team there. We lost to a team from the U.S. in the gold medal game. Um, but, you know, it was a great experience. And for our Nova Scotia men's team, we have such a young team. Other than myself, um, we have uh, a 23-year-old, a 20-year-old, and two 17-year-olds who, you know, I, I first started coaching uh, a few years back and now to be on uh, on the men's team with them and you know our, our future looks really uh, really bright and um, yeah so the tournament it uh, it it went really well um, it was great just to be back on the court uh, competing against uh, teams from uh, Canada and the, and the U.S. 
Well, there and there was also the Ontario Parasport uh, Games recently, and I had the privilege actually to being on the ground there covering the the tournament, speaking to different athletes, organizers, things like that. One of the the key takeaways and common themes that I heard is there needs to be more attention paid to these para sports. So, can you talk about the importance of raising the profile, getting more attention onto sports? And, and in terms of goalball, like how important it is to help grow that sport? Yeah, it's huge. You know, we, we sometimes see stories in the in the media about goalball. Um, a lot of times, though, it's, it's coming from that perspective of, oh, here's a, a really unique uh, sport for the blind and visually impaired where everybody wears eye shades. So we're essentially blindfolded so that we're all on an equal playing field. And it's, and it's quite interesting, you know, the fact that we're playing this intense sport not using our vision but using our other senses um so that part is always interesting but i think that it would be really good to have more coverage of the actual tournaments for example in montreal there was no live stream um i'm hoping there's going to be a live stream coming up at our our nationals that we're hosting like i was at the um the world championships in December in Portugal, and they had a really professional live stream. And goalball is quite big in Europe, for example. And so I'd love to see um, more live streams of events because, you know, through word of mouth and through social media and getting getting it out there because a goalball game can be uh, quite exciting. You know, when we were in Ontario um, for the Parasport games, we split up our men's team into two teams and we were in the gold medal game and the bronze medal game and we went to extra throws, also known as a shootout, and it was very exciting. So, you know, I know my uh, my friend uh, Jenny Bovard, who also contributes to this show, um, she uh, does uh, live streams for us when we host our Nova Scotia Open tournament in November. But um, I was thinking to myself, Alex, that uh, wouldn't it be cool for... Uh, like AMI to do a live stream, for example, broadcast goalball. Um, you have Jenny who does great commentary. Um, but yeah, I think that would uh, that would be great. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm I'm sure there'll be uh, some some email sent. It's like, hey, maybe we can do something more like that in the future. Well, uh, Peter, we have to get out of here. But thank you so much for for coming on, chatting, and letting us get to know you a little bit. Can't wait to uh, have you coming back every every month and uh, sharing some new stories. Thanks. Yeah, this has been great, and I really look forward to uh, coming back. Perfect. So that was Peter uh, Parsons, who is an orientation and mobility specialist at the Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority, and uh, he will be a regular columnist on the show. Coming up after the break, we have a roundtable discussion where Mike wants to ask about housing and our obsession with it. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Mike Ross is standing by to uh, offer up a roundtable topic that's really interesting. But before we do that, we're going to bring in Ramya Muthan, who's going to tell us what to expect on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Alex. Yeah, so what, what have... can we expect? 
Awesome. We have Greg David, our communication specialist here at AMI, of course, joining us for our bi-weekly TV talk. And today's topic is highlights and nominees for this year's Canadian Screen Awards. Uh, he's got the most recent information announced pretty much now. So we're uh, looking forward to that one. And Julie Black, she's kind of trending everywhere because she changed the lyrics of O Canada, one word, when she performed it at the NBA All-Star Game. And uh, we're going to talk more about that moment with entertainment contributor Corinne Van Dusen and we have our entrepreneurship chat with Kevin Shaw and he's talking sales and selling today okay sounds like a great show jam-packed lots of different things to talk about let's bring in Mike Ross Mike you wanted to talk about housing we got a, a few minutes here to dive into this issue so what was on your mind well, we read uh, an article this morning on the Globe and Mail today. Um, it was an editorial piece. And uh, basically what uh, uh, what the writer said is that as a, as, as a population here in Canada, we have uh, an obsession with being homeowners and that maybe it's a little much and maybe we need to be more okay with the idea of renting homes rather than being homeowners and the idea that home ownership is is sort of pushed on people and it, that pressure comes from all angles whether it be your financial institutions whether it come from just sort of societal norms it could come from your parents it could come from your friends it can come from uh, marketing advertising it can come from entertainment sources but that there's just this tremendous outward pressure on people to own a home versus renting a home. And uh, I just want to throw that out there because I think if you'd taken this, um, this editorial and written it, I don't know, 20 years ago when I bought my home, um, I think the, 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 certainly the times were very different as far as people being able to uh, afford a home. And, and honestly, people just, not necessarily feeling like it was a, a a huge burden on them, like that that there was just all this pressure to be a homeowner versus a home renter. I want to throw it out uh, to you guys and uh, and get your thoughts. And Alex, let's, you know, lead us off here. Uh, where do you sort of approach the home ownership versus home rental debate? Uh, yeah, so you know, we only have a a couple minutes here, but uh, I I will say quickly, I I'm always obsessed with it. I always love to own a home, but I think the big challenge is, it's not just that there's the pressures, it's the, the lack of affordability. And even renting is not really necessarily always an affordable option. I think the big challenge comes when home ownership has become a commodity that has been driven up by businesses who are looking to uh, make profits by owning homes and property. I think that kind of makes it much more of an uh, a dream than, than a reality for many, many Canadians. And you know, it, it, the after the 2008 Great Recession, it, it commoditized the idea of flipping houses, making them more of an investment. And so I think that's really the big challenge where everything comes from with home ownership. Ramya, what about you? You got about a minute to, to respond. Oh, man. Okay, I'll try to squeeze in condensed version of it. But for me personally, I've always felt the pressure that, Mike, you're talking about uh, with home ownership and the 
the pressure of the hustle, you know, like you're not accomplishing unless at one point you own a home. But the struggle that I have is you mentioned this already, like times were different before generationally we're experiencing different things today for me as a 30 year old than I was, than my mom was and my dad was and my grandparents were. And also the stages of life have changed. You know, now at 30, you may not be doing the same things that your parents were doing, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And that to me is one of the biggest and maybe um, the least talked about parts of why it's different to own a home today and why it might be more difficult for a lot of people. The affordability obviously plays a huge factor as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mike, I'm, I'm sorry, we kind of shrunk your, your topic here, but we're running out of show. I, I would love to dive in with this you, uh, sometime in the future with you. Thank you so much for bringing this. And Ramya, thank you so much for being on. So Thanks, Alex. That was Ramya Muthan and Mike Ross. That's all the time we have for the show today. Coming up tomorrow, Thursday on Now with Dave Brown, we have director Jake Simperman discussing his new documentary about Buffalo's very first wheelchair football team. So be sure to tune in tomorrow to find out about that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Thanks for watching. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.